Hello, and welcome back to the Beyond Borders Scotland podcast. I'm Rose Monker, and I'm here to introduce this week's episode, Books, Brexit and Bullshit. A discussion with Alistair Campbell on getting young people involved and engaged with politics. Last summer, at the Beyond Borders Festival, I was joined with People's High School student Rory Clark, and we both had the honour of getting to sit down with Alistair to ask the burning questions on the minds of today's generation. Following the release of Alistair's new book, But What Can I Do?, the session covers just that and more. In both the book and in our talk, Alistair breaks down everything from British politics and where it all went wrong, to offering practical tips on how to develop our skills of advocacy and how to conduct ourselves in this political climate. Overall, creating an inviting space for open discussion and education on any political matter, and maybe with a slight grilling too. The Beyond Borders Festival is a space that celebrates and encourages open dialogue, and as a student myself, it was an experience I learned a lot from, and I hope you do too. So, if you find yourself asking, but what can I do, or just want some insight on the questions from today's young people, I hope you enjoy this episode. Please follow and share the Beyond Borders podcast wherever you listen. I have the great pleasure today to call upon two wonderful, uh, one person from People's High School, the other one who had been at People's High School and is now studying journalism, uh, Edinburgh Napier, to to interview uh, Alistair Campbell. I think he was here last year. Uh, and uh, he posed one or two questions. Well, they're about to pose one or two questions back to him. So with that, I'm not going to say anything more because they are going to set and frame this whole debate, but just give them a a, a wild uh, round of applause to our two, Rose and Rory. to be doing the last talk at Beyond Borders and of course with you yourself Alistair thank you so much for joining us um, me and Rory Rory and I are both very excited to be doing this um, our talk obviously is called books brexit and bullshit and we <laughs> hope to cover all three of those things today okay, yeah. we're going to try our very best um, under the impression that last year at Beyond Borders you were asked by a young person in the audience what can I do and that was an inspiration for your book. Is that correct? It was definitely one of them, yeah. Is, yeah. is he here? Hi. There, there he is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here we are. It was, um, I don't know if you read or heard though, but you plunged me into a massive depression. <laughs> <laughs> because you made, you, you were standing over there and you said, you basically said, you said it very nicely, but you basically said, well, it's all very well, you come along and you tell us we should all get involved and get engaged, but you and Rory Stewart have now built up this whole sort of thing with your podcast, you should lead it, that's what you said. And I got back, in, in a very, I get depression from time to time, but it's very rare that it's instant. <laughs> <laughs> and well, it we, we hope not to do that today. Well, but yeah, it was, it was, it was instant, because I, yeah. felt, I felt, you make me feel guilty. You do, you make me feel I should. So then I went away and I thought, right, well, I keep being asked this, but what can we do? So I thought, write a book about it. And actually did, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so well, obviously you wrote the book based on that. And obviously over the last year you've met with lots of young people, with politicians alike. 
And so to narrow all of it down, so to speak, what is the number one issue you see today that turns away young people from politics? Politics. Politics. <laughs> I think people are actually turned off from what politics has become. Not what politics has become when it's good, and there is a lot of good, good in politics, but I think what a lot of young people see politics as being presented to them. Um, I mean, uh, I thought I'd get longer than two minutes before saying the word Boris Johnson, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't underestimate how much damage that hidden, him getting to the top of our politics has done to our politics. Um, I also think that, I think the media's had a big impact upon it. I think it... I think the media... The, listen, there are some great journalists and some of them are here. But I think the centre of gravity of British media culture is now in a very bad place. So if you have a media that is corrosive about politics and a politics that's corrosive about politics, don't be surprised if people start thinking, and young people in particular think, I don't want to know. So I think, I think that's been... That's been a factor. And then, you know, you, you go, you look around the world, I mentioned Johnson, but, you know, having Donald Trump was the most high-profile person on the planet for four years, that, that's, that's bad for politics. Um, so there's, no, there's, no, there's no one single factor, but I, th I, think, it's, I think it's partly that politics, politicians don't take enough care about how their own trade, their own profession is, is, is viewed. And so it's interesting you mentioned the media there. So what has changed in the last 10 years in the media? I don't think it's necessary. Well, what's changed in the last few decades has been fundamental transformation of the media landscape. It's, 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 you know, we're all media now. You know, if you suddenly decided, Rory, to get up and smash me in the face, for example, I'm not saying you will, right. All that, if, if this lady here takes her phone out and films it and tweets it, and it's then on the news, is, does that make her media? We're all media, you know. So I think it's... And, and I think what's happened is that the there used to be... The, when I was growing up as a, as a young journalist, the, the media role was as a kind of accepted gatekeeper between public and politics and vice versa. And I'm not pretending it was perfect and there was, there've always been bad journalists as well as good... But there was a kind of acceptance of sort of rules of the game and people understood what they were. But I think what's happened now is that they've just gone. And as a result, I don't think that the, what we would define as the mainstream media have worked out how to adapt to that. So you watch the, the BBC, which is still the most important uh, outlet, but you, you, you can see sometimes in the way the journalists are talking, the presenters are presenting, they, they can't work out what their role is. Are they meant to be just telling you facts or are they meant to be giving you an assessment of the facts? And they, that gap between opinion and fact has now merged. And instead of having politicians who challenge that, we've ended up with politicians like Trump, like Putin, like Johnson, like Modi, like Erdogan, like Bolsonaro, right around the world, politicians who haven't challenged that to try to get a healthier debate that exploited it for their own ends. And that's, I'm afraid, how populism has corroded our politics. I mean, you mentioned populism there, and that's something in the first half of your book, you kind of talk about these three Ps where you think, kind of as a pillar for where you think British politics has gone wrong. And um, po polarisation kind of being one of the main ones, I feel like young people seem to think is something that puts us off from getting yeah. into politics. 
So how do we tackle polarisation at its root? How do we tackle that to move forward and get past it? Well, I, I think you've got to see the three Ps together. They go together, to my mind. Populism, polarisation and post-truth. They go together. Um, so you have to try and tackle them together. Um, and it's, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. But I think the first answer to the question is you have to care about it. You have to actually say to yourself, this is a real problem. It's not a problem just for the people who are involved in politics. It's a problem for all of us. You're, 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 you guys are growing up in a, as part of a generation that I, I really worry about the, the difficulties you're going to have now in working out the difference between fact and fiction. And that's going to be exacerbated, by the way. I mean, artificial intelligence is going to just take it to a, a completely different level. And like I say, if you had politicians who saw this coming down the track and thought, oh, I can see a problem here, we have to think about how, we, how do we regulate this on a global basis. But we don't have that. We have people saying, oh, here comes another opportunity for me. Just imagine, imagine if Trump is going to be the candidate for the Republicans. Imagine the extent to which he will try to use artificial intelligence to destroy Biden. You know, so we end up with. So we have to care about it. That's the first thing. And then I think, look, I've, I've been really genuinely shocked by the response to the podcast I did with Roy Stewart. But I actually think that is part of an answer to polarization as well. It's actually to say, it's to find people who are di of different opinion, and and to get together. Um, it's why, you know, for example, I think that the whole, the way that algorithms work on social media, for example, and the, the, we've, you've got to force yourself not to just be constantly being travelling down a narrow band of opinion because that's what the, that's what the business model is that, that is making, you know, some, now some of the most powerful and rich people in the world. They have developed business models in the new media organisations that are... It's, it's weird because they're destroying debate rather than being vehicles of debate. Mm. Well, then what would you say to a young person that is trying to grasp and understand politics and form an opinion or a view of themselves? How do they know who to trust and what, is, what facts are right and what isn't? It's difficult, but I think you've... First of all, you've got to ask yourself that question. You've got, in a way, because I think it's really important, I talk in the book about it, it's really important not to be cynical. It's really important not to say, I can't believe anybody. You have to have, if we don't have belief, you know, we're finished. So you have to, in a sense, you have to educate yourself, think about how do I, how do I find out what's actually going on? And so, for example, um, if you are particularly inter in a, interested in a particular subject, don't just rely on one person to tell you what the facts are. Because, you, you know, you, you've got to kind of go a bit deeper maybe than we used, to go, we used to go. And I think the other thing I'd say is don't... If you, if you think about how many people really... It was really interesting, driving down from... Um, we were driving down the last couple of hours getting here today. And because Burnley were about to play, I was listening to Radio 5. And there was a discussion with Steve Bruce, who's a football manager, currently out of work and, and what have you. But he, they were having this really interesting discussion about, about friendship in football and who you really trust, OK? And all the three guys on the panel basically said there were maybe two, three, four, five people of the thousands that they played with, worked with, been on the same teams as, that they really, really stayed close to. So work out who you trust. 
You know, and it won't be that many people. It doesn't need to be that many people. But work out who they are. And don't push away other people's opinions just because you think you're likely to disagree with them. Absorb their opinions. Absorb what, what it is that they're saying to, saying to you. And I, I think the other thing is just stay very, very curious and, and don't... You know, it's like at the moment on this artificial intelligence stuff. Our interview next week on, on the podcast is with a, one of the sort of you know, high priests of this stuff. I'm desperate to try to work out how it all works because I don't know, right? And I think you've just got to say to yourself, I have to find out for myself how this stuff works. Yeah. Well, then how can we actually question political leaders then? as young people, how can we actually make our voices be heard and question the truth and the facts and reality to the people that are telling us what is going on and that we're looking to to try and find our, our way? By being engaged in the debate, by making them understand that you are engaged in the debate. I say in the book, if you go through every continent in the world, the, the voting um, habits are almost identical. In every continent in the world, the decile that votes the least is the youngest. Okay? Now, and yet, conversely, the place where you'll usually go to find real passion for change and passion for new ideas and so forth is that same generation. So they're not voting. We can come on to why they're not voting, but I'll tell you, that has a direct influence upon the way the politicians behave. As We're now entering an election period. If you're not careful, the voice of young people doesn't get heard because the politicians are sitting there thinking, well, they might moan, they might tweet, they might sign petitions, but they're not going to vote. So we don't need to worry so much. So you have to make them worried. And you do that by your own levels of engagement. Um, you know, I write in the book about Greta Thunberg. I think Greta Thunberg, I'm a huge fan of Greta Thunberg. I think she's an amazing phenomenon. And regardless of the issue that she cares about, the reason I find her so interesting is because she showed how an individual can move the dial on a debate. So that if she turns up in any country in the world, right, the leaders of that country feel, oh, we better see her. And then they have to sort of say the things that they think she wants to hear. Now, and that's part of the political process. So not everybody can be her, but everybody can make their voice heard. And, you know, we were talking upstairs about the... Um, this whole thing about... And, and the guys that are following you around... I don't know who they were, but there's two guys following you around filming Finn and you. Martin. Right, OK. Well, and <laughs> They're meant to be, I should okay, say. OK, yeah. OK. And, and they, were film crew. <laughs> they were asking... They were asking... Asking me about what I thought the, 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 the single limit... The biggest limiter of young people thinking about getting into politics, thinking they can get into politics. And I think it's confidence... And the reason we've ended up... Here's a little factoid for you. The Labour Party, in our entire history, has produced six prime ministers. Eton has produced 20. You're still one of my facts there. I was going to mention yeah. that. Oh, was it? <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, oh, sorry. <laughs> that, was a, that was the start off of my next question. OK, sorry, oh. sorry. No, it's OK. Well, I mean, it kind of goes straight into, like, encouraging young people into politics. It starts with the question of education. Mm -hmm. Should politics be taught in schools? 100%. And how do we do that without bias? Should politics be taught with... I mean, it's hard to teach politics. It is hard bias. to teach politics with bias, but some, school, some countries do it. Um, I mean, again, you know, if you look at the, the school curriculum, as, you know, I think Michael Gove, I can't speak for Scotland because I don't know enough about you know, what's happened in Scotland, but certainly in, 
in England, I think Michael Gove is, is politicised the curriculum. Uh, and that's what, you, that's, what you do, that's what politicians like him do. But the idea, I'm actually, I'll t I don't know if I'm allowed to say this yet, because I, I haven't, they haven't announced it, but I'll tell you anyway. Um, <laughs> Get hearing it first. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually currently writing a, a, a new book, which is emerged from this, wow. which is going to be about politics for primary school kids. Amazing. Um, because I think, you know how you go to school, right? And we get taught from like this age that it's really good to run around the playground and do sport and do PE, right? We get taught that. And I think we need to tell young people politics is really good for you. Because if you don't, if you don't do it, bad people are going to do it. And so, so I think I think um, no, it, it should. If you don't have to call it politics, but we should learn. I mean, the number of here's one of the most depressing things of recent history in this country. I'm sure some of you know this. The the most googled phrase in the world, question in the world on June the 24th, 2016, was "What is the European Union?" In Britain. Wow. I mean, you know we. If you don't have an educated country, you're going to fail. And it's an education, by the way, isn't just about people who get degrees and exams. Education is about everybody having a shared sense of the country that we are. And if people don't even know the basics of how politics works, it becomes very difficult. Well, it's interesting talking about educating in politics. And uh, well, we thought you might be up for a little challenge here. Because um, oh. yep. you're talking about educating politics in school, and obviously this book will educate lots of people in politics, but most of the young people who are in the audience today will be entirely self-educated in politics. Yeah. So our, our challenge for you is, in the next three minutes, can you give everyone in this room a crash course in British politics? Or where you think it's gone wrong. Oh. We've, got here. we've got a timer here, we've got a timer here, we're going to put you on the spot. What? Hold on. A crash course in British politics? And how it works. As if we were all primary school children here. <laughs> In the light of your new book. <laughs> okay. Should I set the timer? Do you want to count then? Three minutes. Yep, three minutes. I think, but I think it'd be better if I did it in less than three minutes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What, think you can do it in one or two? I'll try for three. Okay, but give me three and see how we go. Okay. 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 Ready? Go. Okay, so we are a parliamentary democracy. Uh, we used to be run by monarchs, and they had absolute power. They could even go around chopping their wives' heads off if they didn't like them. Uh, but democ And democracy is a form of politics where people have a say. Okay, And people have a say in lots of different ways, but the main way they have a say is in electing other people to represent them in... That's my dog. <laughs> in Parliament. My dog that's on my socks. Can you see her? Um, and and so part and Parliament is from Parliament that we take we get our government, and government has immense power over all of our lives, and it has immense responsibility as well. Um, and the government <laughs> gets elected on a program for which we vote. And it then tries to get it through a quite complicated parliamentary process. Okay? Uh, and you have bills. And if the bills get passed, they become acts, and then they are the law. And our country is supposed to be governed by the rule of law.
brackets, no need to mention Boris Johnson again. <laughs> um, complicating the arrangement is the fact that we also have, and have had forever, local government, and we also now have, thanks to the, one of the best governments in history, elected in 1997, we have a programme of devolution to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and some of our big cities, and they have their own electoral systems and they have their own leaders and they'd have to work in conjunction with the others to try to bring progress for the people. And governments have the responsibility, how are we doing time? Governments have the responsibility. You've got less than a minute. I've done less than a minute. I've got less than a minute. Less than a minute left. left. Okay. And governments have the responsibility to deliver. I'd say their prime responsibilities are stability and growth in the economy so that we can be prosperous strong public services and representing Britain in the world. And my uh, fear at the moment is that the current UK government is doing none of those things at all well. How was that? Well, it's interesting you say there about how the government has this sort of huge governing power. And, and would you say it's at a point where the government has too much power, that it's in the hands of people who perhaps are going to misuse that power? Yeah, I think, I, I certainly think that, I mean, Lord Hailsham used to say that, you know, Britain was essentially an elective dictatorship. In other words, you elect the government and that government then has enormous power. Now, when you had the coalition, Cameron and Clegg, um, inevitably, if you have a coalition, the power is... Diluted. If you have a small majority, look at Theresa. Well, we were at the event with Theresa May yesterday. The, she she had to rely on another party, and it became impossible to do it. So you know, we back in 1997, we had a massive majority, but I don't think we abused that power. If anything, I mean, Tony Blair said in his own autobiography, he felt it made him, in a way, too cautious at the start because he felt I've got to, I can't look like I'm just sort of you know all powerful. But I think that what we what we've got to stop doing is thinking that the only power we have comes at election time. I think we're just very, very complacent between elections. I go to France a lot, and honestly, look, just look at them. I'm not suggesting we all go rioting every weekend, right? But, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, over a fairly modest change to the pension system that Macron tried to bring forward to reduce to raise the pension age from 62 to 64, they've virtually had riots in the streets. We have had so much bad stuff done to us in the last few years. And it's like, oh, well, this is what it is. Can't do anything about it. So I think it's the, the sort of complacency that people have, which feeds into the hopelessness. Yeah. So if you've got some people feeling, there's nothing I can do, and other people saying, and there's nothing they can do because, you know, nothing ever changes, when actually the change is happening all the time, that combination of complacency and hopelessness is so corrosive. And so we've got, we've got to sort of take more responsibility for ourselves on this. People just, people aren't engaged enough. They're engaged, lots of people are interested, but actually, you know, the, the, the word activism, this is why I like Greta Thunberg, the word activism, the three most important letters of the first three. You've got to do stuff. You've got to do stuff. Well, while we're on the topic of engagement, I think one of the main issues for me that's often overlooked in an issue that affects young people is ever so slightly controversial issue of free speech. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, we know that the, the free speech university rankings found that of 150 universities, almost two thirds were found to be severely restrictive of free speech. And even over in America, six out of every 10 students felt afraid to say their opinion on campus. So with that said, is free speech under threat? And if so, who from? Uh, I think it, I'm sort of torn on this because I, I actually, I think there, there are some people who, when they see I'm not entitled, when they say I'm not entitled to say what I think, what they actually mean is that they used to feel comfortable about being racist in public, and now they're not. So that is a sort of, if they see that as a loss of freedom of speech, I couldn't give a damn, okay? Elsewhere, and I think you talk, when you, particularly when you talk about America, I think there are parts of the American university system where there's a sort of hom homogenized view that you have to have, and if you stray beyond that, then you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, you're considered either weird or dangerous or whatever. And I, and I don't like that either. So, but I, look, I've got to be honest, I think, I think free, this argument about free speech, I think, it's been, I think it's been taken over mainly by the right as a way of covering up for the fact that they don't actually have a political agenda. I really worry in our next election about this whole culture war stuff. You know, there's so many really, really big challenges that are not being confronted. And yet there's a desire. The re why did Rishi Sunak appoint that clown, Lee Anderson, as a vice chairman? Answer, his job is to try to get these culture wars going so as that people like me fall into the trap of having massive arguments with people like him that have nothing to do with actually the real problems that the country's facing to do with cost of living or the health service or whatever it might be. So I'm not persuaded that this freedom of speech thing is as serious as, as some people... Uh, say it is, but but I get where it's coming from, and I think we've got to be very wary of it. And I hope we don't go down that American road. I hate the thing of non-platforming. You know, I look. I wouldn't go on a platform with a, an avowed fascist, okay? But I do share a platform with Nigel Farage, who at times gets close, um, because I think you've got to have you've got to have argument with people, and and you know the motto of our podcast: disagree agreeably. You've got to try to do that. It's sometimes very, very difficult. But no, I don't like non-platforming, but I, I've never felt this something I can't say that I want to say, ever. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Nigel Farage because the whole thing about disagreeing agreeably is that you need to use sort of nice, not nice terms, but respectful terms to talk to each other. But you've called Nigel Farage on Twitter a right-wing rag. And so I suppose the question there is, do we not all have a role to play in, in having that engaging debate that is polite, that is respectful, even if the person who's sitting across from you, you disagree with greatly, you think is a fascist or you think is yeah. a communist. You know, is it not a place to maybe not call them things that are going to really... Yeah, I think, I think look, I, interestingly, one of the things that, having done this podcast now with, for 50, whatever, however long it is, with Roy Stewart, I have found my own assessment of the way that I conduct politics down the years changing. I think there is a place sometimes for absolute raw anger and passion. I really do. And I think sometimes, you know, it's the only way you can get a point across. And I've been in exchanges with people, Farage being one of them, where it's, you know, almost come to blows. And we, we care about things. You know, he really cares that... He cared that we should wretch Britain out of the European Union so as we could all be poorer and weaker and all the other things that have happened. I really care the other. I really care about other stuff. But I agree, I think it's... I th and, and that's 
That's why, for example, you have these rules in the House of Commons about not being able to call someone a liar. Um, but I, th I sort of feel that they're, they're breaking down because the, d the, the respect for that sort of debating is not as strong as it used to be. The respect for the institution is not as strong as it used to be. And that's been a deliberate tactic of these people on the hard right. So I think you've got to, you've, sometimes you've got to go a little bit over the top to get your point made. But I agree, in, in principle, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. So what would we do then when free speech goes too far? I mean, what would you say to people that have views that are potentially harmful and dangerous? How would you respond to that and interact with that? Well, give me an example. For instance, Trump, all of his comments he's made about women in the past, I mean, that's is pretty atrocious. Yeah, I mean, they're for disgusting. A young they're disgusting, and it's for a young person to think that that's someone that can be put in power I think that installs a sense of hopelessness agree. in young people. Well, and it's, inf it's infuriating, it's frustrating. No, it is frustrating, but I, I think that you ha that's why you have to... You mustn't, because of that, you mustn't turn away from that. You have to go into it. It's like, look what's happening in Spain at the moment, right? <laughs> you have that situation recently. Spain win the Women's World Cup. Amazing. Incredible story. The woman who scores the winning goal finds out after the game that her dad died two days earlier and they kept it from. It's an incredible sort of heroic story. And all anybody's talking about is this bald guy kissing one of the players, right? And it's, and it's, it's part of a culture. That culture's now being challenged, okay? But I'll tell you, I wrote my new European column yesterday and I've, I've written about this. If you've had Trump with his, you know you can grab their pussy and nobody cares because you're famous. Johnson, with his kind of endless fathering of children, can't even count how many children he's got, the rest of it. Berlusconi with the nonsense of his bunga bunga parties, all the stuff that we've had. Then those people in Spain who are standing up for the guy, they feel empowered by that. So the answer is you've got to make sure that people like Trump don't get elected. But how, how do we do that as, you know, as, as a young woman myself and many other young people? That can seem terrifying to like, speak out against these major politicians that seem like they have so much more power. How do we actually actively, as young people, go against these people that are making these harmful statements? What but, can we actually do? Well, by doing it. By, 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 you know, so, look, some politicians do it. And I understand why some people would no more go into politicians than, you know, jump out of a window. I get that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, so you do, the answer to the question, what can you do? You do whatever you can. There, there, and there are limits to that, okay? And I get, I completely get why something like, you look at what's, let's, let's stop talking about Trump for a minute. Think about how would you do it in Russia? You know, how, where you see somebody like Navalny who tries to campaign against Putin and he gets thrown in jail, and he's just had 15 years added to his sentence for a completely bogus thing. I mean, it's hard. It's really, really hard. But you have to have people like that who will keep doing that, and eventually, tipping points will come. So, but you have to, call, you have to keep calling the stuff out. You can't not call these things out. Hmm. I think... I, I, give me an example. Yeah. I don't know if it was your university. It was, I think it was Edinburgh. I've got a friend who's... Son graduated from Edinburgh University yeah, this year. Been a, a lot of my like friends have not had dissertations right. marked at all. Right. And what did they do when they were going up to the graduation? Quite a few of my friends have protested. Exactly. Yeah. They all made protests as they went up on the stage. Now, it's limited, mm. but it's doing something. So all I'd say is you've got to do something. You've got to do what you can do. But what would you say to people that want 
the change fast. I mean, a lot of young people, I guess, we want change and we want to see it fast. We can protest and we can well, stand with signs and banners. I agree, but, but what I'd say to that is that the... This, the and I make this point in the book, that the pace of change in the world now is so fast, but the processes of politics have always been slow. So therefore, maybe you need to think about changing the process of politics. How do you do that? By being engaged in politics. How do you do that? Go through these things. I can't stop looking there. There's David Steele there. I don't, I don't know if you know David, but you're in this book because you're one of my examples. He's a very, very good example of... And I, and I, I say in the book that when, whenever people say to me, one person can't make a difference, you know, David took through a law private member's bill which became legislation and to this day the abortion framework in this country was set by something that he did. Now, it took a long time and it took years of campaigning. So sometimes, I was listening today, the other thing I was listening to the radio was 60th, tomorrow, the 60th anniversary of the Martin Luther King speech. Yeah. Right? I have a dream. Can anybody remember the next line? Uh, <laughs> see? So, but... So, so it took it took a long time. So we and this is the this, I think this is a real. Your question goes to the heart of something that I think is really difficult, because you've grown up as part of a generation where so much stuff is instant. Pick up your phone, twiddle a few knobs, and your dinner arrives, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, you can you can you can you can you can date online. You can bank online. You can do it all on your phone, and you think. Why is, can I do all this so quickly? But this law that obviously needs changing, it takes so long to change it. Yeah. I mean, to round it up there, I'm conscious we need to get on to some <laughs> questions. But I would like to end, or maybe perhaps quite a big and unrealistic question here. But if you, if you had to tell the government to focus on one thing that you think would make the most change, one thing, what would it be? In this political arena? Yes. It wouldn't just be one. But if you had to say one, if you had to be 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 one, I think it's time for some audience questions. Um, if you have any <coughs> questions from... I should mention we've been told to give priority to the young people in the yeah, audience. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I think in, we in have a question for Lady down here. Yes? And... Mm -hmm. And then... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just that lady there. Hi. Um, so earlier in the speech, you were saying about how politics is good for you, but previously on the podcast, Rory said politics is bad for you. So how can we look after our mental health and go into politics? You, know, it just, you have to listen to me, not him. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's quite... It's quite because he's, he's, got a, he's got a book coming out next week, I think, and it's, it's almost like the opposite of mine. Um... Yeah, he said it's bad for... He said that it, it scarred him. Um, and I get that. I completely get that. It's, the truth is, it's both. It's both. But I think you have to... If we all only focus on the bad, nobody's ever going to do it. And if nobody ever does it, we're, we're really only going to get the bad people doing it. 
Um, and so I think we do, you do have to try and change it. I think we shouldn't be naive and unrealistic, though. Politics will always be difficult. Politics will always be tough. And, and by the way, it always should be. Because you should be able to, you know, it, it shouldn't be easy just to change things like that when there, there is always going to be another point of view. So I, 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 I do think, though, that Rory's, I think Rory had a, I think he had a bad experience. Uh, but I think he's quite tempted to get back in at some point. <laughs> Any other? <laughs> something there. Yeah. Any I, um, other questions at all? Um, this young boy at the front here. Yeah, getting really young. Okay. <laughs> Could you give us one positive and one negative of the current British government? <laughs> well, the most positive is that if the polls are right, they won't be there much longer. <laughs> uh, and the most negative is that they're the worst government this country's ever had. <laughs> and I think we should go for the yeah yeah yeah. The book Don't do it again. Don't do it again. <laughs> I'm sorry. I've been working on how I interact with people, so hopefully it goes better. <laughs> I've had a year. Um, so I'm American. I'm not sure if you noticed that last time. Um, and I study history here in in Scotland. And um, one of the biggest takeaways I can remember doing this degree. Um, was learning about uh, the Beveridge Report in 1944, I think, talking about having the NHS. And I remember the sort of visual account that was being written and recorded right then, where the report had been issued out, and you, you hear these descriptions of um, people in London, people in Manchester, reading the Beveridge Report on the street. Um, I remember this one instance where someone comes onto a bus with a copy of the report, and the bus driver asks to hear what it says. And you've often talked about how Germany has serious politics. Um, and I just feel like with the media landscape we've entered now, people no longer want to talk about the policy. Uh, I mean, that is <laughs> heads and heels above anything I think I yeah. see in my country. Uh, and I just wish Britain stayed like that that interest in the detail and the policy that affects people's lives. Mm. I think with the change in media, what you see is people are actually interested in the things that don't affect their lives mm. and are secondary or tertiary. You know, talking about, oh, how many you know, uh, brown people are there going to be in this country when they don't see any of it with their own eyes and it doesn't really affect them. Um, and I was just wondering what you would say to push the dial to get more serious. Because I, I do think the media structure is a problem, and I don't know how we change it. With, I think the social media has democratized, you know, learning about these identity politics and this culture wars, and people have internalized it, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. So how do we become serious again? Well, look, I th sorry to keep banging on about the podcast, but I do think the fact that so many people seem to listen to it is because people actually want something more serious. I'm not saying we're kind of, you know, university professor times. We're not. We're, you know, we're trying to be accessible. But when I said earlier that our problem, a lot of our political problems are created by this kind of conjunction of media trivialisation and political trivialisation, they feed off each other. I mean, I'll be honest, I was quite disappointed. You know, we, by the way, we played into this. I'm not pretending we're saintly in this. You know, we played the game with the Murdochs and this lot. I remember there was a brilliant interview a few years ago with Brian Clough. Do you know who Brian Clough was? Most people know Brian Clough, don't they? Yeah. Brian Clough was a, f a, a legendary football manager back in the day. 
and I can't remember what year it was, but you can find it on YouTube. And he said, the, this, he had a very, very characteristic voice. He said, the, the, the most, the, the very simple thing he could do to improve this country overnight, ask Mr. Rupert Murdoch to leave it right now. <laughs> <coughs> and, you know, I think that, but again, I was a bit disappointed to see that Keir Starmer went to Murdoch's recent summer do. Now, I know, I know why he did it. I know why he did it, because we used to do the same. It's like Tony Blair used to say, if you've got a rabid dog in the corner of the room, try and keep it in the corner of the room. And that's kind of how we see the media. But I go back to the point about education. If, I mean, I don't know how anybody can still read the Daily Express newspaper. I just don't. I don't. When you think that every single day it tells you that the country's going brilliantly, Brexit's going absolutely way better than anybody thought that it would, and people are buying that. I don't think, how is that going? They can't be buying that unless they're absolutely so ideologically motivated that it's feeding something in them, or actually that they have neither care nor knowledge about the world around them. So I'll go back to the point about education. We've got to educate each other and ourselves in a way that at the moment neither government nor media have any interest in doing. We've got to take back control. <laughs> any other questions? Um, I think we have this lady here. Yep. This lady here. Hi, yeah, uh, you, you went through a number of things you thought could be done to get people more engaged in politics and and I was actually originally going to ask a question about lowering the uh, the age that people can vote at, which you've already answered. But the other half I was going to ask, and I was going to ask all three of you really what you think, is in Scotland for the Scottish Parliament you have proportional representation. We don't have it in general elections. Uh, and I actually live just over the border in England. We don't have it at all. And I certainly know plenty of people who say they don't vote because they don't feel that their vote matters. Mm. People voted in the Brexit referendum because they knew it was the one time that their vote might matter. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand? Where does the Labour Party stand? What do the young people on the platform feel about proportional represent representation in general elections so that we feel that our vote might actually matter? Yeah. 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 For me, um, of course, I can see the advantages of pro proportional representation here in Scotland. It does certainly make your vote feel like it matters more. On the other hand, I can see the uh, arguments for first-past-the-post down, down south and in general elections, because it does mean that if you get the odd loony party, monster-raving loony party, they're much less likely to get in. And I feel for keeping politics sane, even though I appreciate that it's not always been that way for the main parties. But it means we don't get really niche parties in that aren't going to actually uh, help our nation. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of with Rory on that one there as well. I mean, even just the strength and kind of how you mentioned there about how a lot of people feel like their vote doesn't matter. That's something I feel like a lot of young people, I hear quite a lot. And it's, it's infuriating that that is the case. And I think it kind of goes back to touching on what we need to really encourage young people as to why their vote does count and why it does matter. And they can clearly see that their vote has a direct impact and a, re and a reaction and their voice can be heard from that. Yeah. Um, fair enough, as I was walking in here, uh, somebody stopped me and said, that they heard me talking about the Scotland and Scottish politics on the podcast and said, you underestimate how a lot of the damage up here has been done by PR because, <laughs> because there's the, the, you, you lose the sort of sense of the constituency bit, the constituency MP. So there's, 
I think said, you've got to differentiate between electoral reform, which I completely agree with, but then there's a big step to what that system should be. Um, but one thing I'm absolutely convinced of is that the current political system is not working. Uh, it's not working... I mean, the, there's, it's very rare that I'm ever going to agree with a single thing that Nadine Dorries ever says. But she did have a point in her self-indulgent, flatulating letter of resignation yesterday <laughs> when she said that there is something very wrong with our democracy when we've had, was it, five prime ministers with one actual election involved. Something wrong. Um, there's something fundamentally wrong that somebody like Liz Truss can be, made, can be made prime minister. And it's not just because she's utterly useless. It's the fact that 0.0-something percent of the country actually got to have a say in it. That's flawed. That's wrong. So I just think that the, what we should have, since you were about beverage, and I really do think, and I, I, I'm desperate for Labour to kind of do this, is that these really big challenges are going to require really big solutions. And I'd love it if, for example, Labour just said in the next, manif next manifesto, our country is stuck, it feels broken, and part of that is because our politics is broken and we have to have a fundamental review of how all of our political systems are working. And you can then open it up. But if we just keep trying to defend it, and you might end up with proportional representation. You might not. When Rory was speaking, I was thinking, there's an election going on at the moment in Holland. The, why are they having to have an election in Holland? Is because Holland's becoming ungovernable. Because you've got your point. You're getting these tiny parties that are getting into a few, with a few seats, and now you're getting you're finding nobody's able to form any sort of kind of governing majority. So sometimes be careful what you wish for, but when it is so clearly not working, there has to be change within the system. But I think it actually has to go beyond just what electoral system we have. I think I was also going to mention there, Alistair, when we're talking about proportional representation, I'm sure in Scotland the vast majority of Conservative MSPs come from that regional list. Yeah. So, of course, if we were to have just a constituency list in Scotland, the majority would be held by the SNP, yeah. which I think is an interesting point to note. Yeah, exactly. Which takes to what I was going to ask. Uh, you've come to Scotland, so you must have, I assume, expected a Scottish independence question at some point. Um, the last couple of days, a lot of the talks have referred to the fact that Britain has kind of lost its sense of identity since the 1950s. Uh, we got told in 2014 that we're stronger together and that things will be better as part of Britain. Uh, can you give us an argument for now, since we've just been told that you know the British system is very much stagnating and broken. Can we get an argument for why Britain is better with Scotland in it and what Scotland's role is in Britain now? Me? Them? <laughs> I'd like to see opinions from everyone, yeah, but... Um, well, um, wow. The second. Why do I have to go first? <laughs> um, well, certainly on the topic of independence, you know, I... I for me, it's a case of, like, I love the idea of independence, personally. Um, I feel it's something, the idea of governing ourselves works for me. However, it's the financial burden that I feel is, is really hard to overlook. I struggle to see how we could have got through the pandemic uh, if we were an independent country, as we were given the choice in 2014. And so for me, it, it's really the financial burden that I have trouble to get over. I mean, I'm 
personally, I, I, I voted for independence. Um, and I, I was 16 when I was able to vote in that election. And um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe being my age had a lot to do with the factor that I maybe didn't, was fully aware of kind of more financial impacts of that that Rory's kind of highlighted. But I think still my view kind of remains the same that I, I'm, I'm for Scottish independence. I would like to see Scotland become independent. I mean, I, I kind of move up and down on this. I, when we had the Richard Johnson as Prime Minister and we had Brexit, I started to think, God, if, if I was living in Scotland, I would just want to get away with this and I don't care what it would be, right? At the same time, the big thing that I've taken out of the whole Brexit madness is that particularly now with the, the world changing so fast and the power structures of the world changing so fast, we're already in a world where essentially you have China, you have America, and the only other body that is going to get even close in terms of power is the European Union. Possibly further down the track, India, possibly Brazil, possibly Nigeria in a few you know, decades. But for now, so we have, the United Kingdom, we have made ourselves fundamentally weaker and less relevant in the world. And funny enough, one of the arguments I tried to get the Remain, the, the, the No campaign to make in 2014, when Cameron and Osborne were doing their thing, was actually, my, one of my big worries about independence has actually been, if Scotland goes, there's absolutely no way in the world that we can continue to maintain that United Kingdom should still be one of the, the big five at the United Nations. Now, that gives us enormous power in the world, which we don't have economically anymore, we don't have militarily anymore, but we have that. And I guess what I'm saying is I, I'm afraid, I just think that at a time the, the power structures in the world are getting bigger and more powerful, we shouldn't be making ourselves smaller, and I'm afraid that's what we've done with Brexit. Uh, we've got one up here at the back. Oh, and, uh, I think I've got my brother over there. I wanted to ask oh, a question. Yes. Your brother? Yeah. 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 Younger brother. Over there. The ones walking out. <laughs> um, so I'm a, a politics teacher at Pupils High School, um, and I was wondering, do you think that uh, citizenship education should be compulsory, and how do we make sure that it's practical teaching skills and not just uh, knowledge? Yeah, I mean, look, when I said earlier, whether you call it politics or not, I absolutely do. I think that, and, and I, I also think that when I talked earlier about the sort of politicisation of, of the curriculum, there has to be a <laughs> complete, when I was about reviewing the political system, we've got to review what, what, is our, what is our education actually for? We're trying to make a stronger country, we're trying to make better, happier, healthier, better educated people. Well, if you don't teach people or advise people or help people how to be good citizens, you're not going to do that. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I, just, it's, I, I can't even begin to understand why we're still having an argument about that. Time for one more question. Yes. So, uh, uh, Aaron, <laughs> yeah. on you go. Who's this for? Oh, your brother. Yeah. Is that your brother? That is. Yeah. How old is your brother? Um, 13. Right. Just turned 13 yesterday. <laughs> yep, yesterday. 
Uh, so earlier today, you said that you think politics should be mandated in schools, but would that not be taking away the free choice of subjects in schools? Would that almost not be forcing uh, children to take politics in schools? Yeah, but just like, <laughs> just like you're forced at the moment to take maths and English, I actually wish that you were still forced, I don't know if you are in Scotland, but you're not in England, I wish you were still forced to do like foreign languages. Um, I, I really do think we, 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 you know, and like I say, it doesn't have to be called politics, and it will be very political, and the right-wing rags will say this is about trying to put propaganda into schools and blah, blah, blah. I just think we are becoming in, like most of the audience here, you come to an event like this, you come to the festival like this, you're interested in the world around you, right? But I actually think we are becoming one of the, one of the most ill-informed countries on the planet. It's terrifying how little people know about their own country at times. So we have to, we have to, we have to teach that. So, yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would say teach politics in school, or call it citizenship, or call it, call it whatever you want. But we have to know how our country is meant to work. Because at the moment, we don't know, a lot of us don't know, and even worse than that, it's not working. Well, I think we've got time for one more question. <laughs> Someone's jumping. <laughs> mm, well done. Well, it must be. We've got good, just that question there. Yep. I think it might be a show. <laughs> it's not. I'd start with a, an apology to you, Alistair. Oh because I heckled you last year. Oh, right. <laughs> and on the subject of, like, what do we call it? Education, education, education. Uh -huh. And I said, kind of like, what makes a good politician? Like, is it someone that does political science and finance, but actually it's probably experience, experience, experience that's a thought you mentioned about how people act and um, when it was the Iraq war Scotland had a vote a whole month before Westminster and there was people of all ages all genders that took to the roads of Scotland. And at that time, I'm kind of like hoping, we're, we're I'm like hoping that Jack McConnell's not in the room at the moment. He was here yesterday, I think. But... I said it was a show. Um, <laughs> you did. And you've been a show. I already asked the first question, didn't I? But... Jack McConnell was forced through with the Scottish Parliament to say yes to invading Iraq. So we do have some action sometimes. There we go. Very good. Um, on, that, on that note. <laughs> okay, no, no, let me just deal with that very briefly. Um, first of all, as you'll know, defence and foreign policy is a Westminster issue. So Jack McConnell was not forced to do anything because ultimately the Westminster Parliament and the, and the Westminster Government took that decision, which I presume you didn't agree with and you're entitled to that. Um, on your point about what makes a good 
politician. There's no such, there's no single formula. We need a lot of good politicians and they need to be different. I can look at somebody like, one of my favourite politicians ever was the Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating. Uh, I can look at, uh, I can look at Bill, I love Bill Clinton. I look at Angela Merkel and I think, well, she's not the most charismatic woman in the world, but she's bloody good at what she did. And she's different. And I look at some of the people that I've worked with down the years, and this is, this is one of the worst things that gets said about politicians. They're all the same. They're not all the same. They're all very, very, very different. We want lots of good, different people from different backgrounds with different qualities. Um, but I've got to say, a cabinet in one of the five, the big five in the United Nations, a cabinet that has Suella Braverman as Home Secretary that had Nadine Dorries in charge of culture, that it, it's just not serious. That had Jacob Rees-Mogg doing his madness. It's just not serious. So that's why you've got to do it. <laughs> oh, there we go. I know that one. Thank you.